Hello and welcome to 10 by 9, where nine people have up to 10 minutes each to tell a true story from their own life. I'm Paul Doran and this is the 10 by 9 podcast. This week, 10 by 9 was on the road again, this time to Derry, my hometown. So it was a very special occasion for me, but also a very special evening of brilliant true stories. We were there as guests of Spread the Word, the city's new literary festival. The venue was the Waterside Theatre, and the theme was New Beginnings. There are three stories for you from that evening on this podcast. Our mum stopped in front of the structure and prayed that we would be blessed with a new home. You have complete control over this. So I want you to know that you can tell me anything. I only want to help you. The floodgates opened. The teenage boys were now on their knees, roaring with laughter. Himself, still oblivious. Okay, well, let's get on with the show. All three storytellers were at the 10 by 9 mic for the first time, though you wouldn't know it. And here's the first of them, Anne Tracy. We had been allocated a new home. A council house on a brand new estate in my hometown of Moneymore. I was three years old at the time, the baby of the family. I had six older brothers, Frank, Jack, Brendan, Brian, Desmond and Michael. Baby Patrick who would have been the third eldest, and my seventh brother, was stillborn. A tragic loss that brought sorrow and grief to the Corey household. The lead up to the move is not in my recall, but the day we moved in certainly is. The wonder of it all, the novelty, I vividly remember running around, opening the cupboard doors in the kitchen, peering in, and then closing each one carefully before moving on to the next. My own little ritual, attempting to make sense of the newness, the space. There was a set of stairs up to a second floor that had to be investigated. My tiny feet echoed throughout the whole house as I stomped on each wooden step, determined to find out what was up there. I discovered three empty rooms, and they seemed big and spacious to my small, inquisitive self. Among other things, we had a kitchen, a bathroom, a hot press, and a garden. These luxuries were unknown to us in the home we were leaving behind. A revolution was taking place. In the excitement, it didn't quite sink in until we were permanently relocated that I was also leaving behind my dear Aunt Annie, my dad's sister. Annie never married. She lived with us, and I was her wee girl. I wonder how she felt 
about our departure. Thankfully, Annie remained well within reach, and in my growing up years, she became a great role model for me. Hardworking. She liked a wee sherry. A wee smoke. Her red lipstick. And her red high heels. I imitated her in nearly all of those habits. Annie was one of the kindest and most generous people I've known in my life. A local man, Dermot Duffy, kindly flitted us. His big flat-backed furniture lorry carried all our possessions in two or three runs. My brother Michael reminded me that it was the late autumn, almost winter time, when we made the move. He recalls the final walk from the old to the new house on a Saturday evening in the dark. The distance between the two houses was about a five-minute walk, but the change of location brought a change of scenery. Our new home was facing Sleeve Gallon, and from our living room window, we could catch a glimpse of what we fondly referred to as the mountain, a much-loved landmark revered in James McGarvey's well-known lament of the Irish emigrant, Slave Gallon Braze. We, as children and adults, were forever captivated by our dad's rendition of the song, often sung at the fireside. As I went a-walking one morning in May To view yon fair valleys and mountains so gay I was thinking on the flowers all going to decay That bloom around you, bunny, bunny Sleeve gallon brace. My name is James McGarvey, and I'd have you understand. I come from Derry Gennard, and I own a farm of land. But the rents are getting higher, and I can no longer pay. So farewell unto you, Bonnie, Bonnie, Sleeve Gallon Acquiring the new house didn't come easy. Our dad, Francie Corey, like many others, had to plead his case with a local council member, Jim Farley. I checked with my brother Brandon, a few years older than me at the time, to see what he could recall. And he didn't have a strong recollection of the move itself. But he did paint a poignant picture that touched my heart very deeply. 
Brendan recalled that the family walks on a Sunday sometimes took the route around the estate where the new houses were being built. Such was the yearning to be relocated. Our mum, Susan Corey, stopped in front of the structure of what would eventually be a neighbouring house and prayed that we would be blessed with a new home. Knowing mum as a woman of faith, her prayers would have been fervent and intense. I wonder now what it really felt like for our mum and dad to get their prayers answered, to get the fresh start of a move to a new and more spacious home in which to rear their family. Were they excited, delighted, beside themselves with joy? We might imagine that on some level, hearing the good news would have been like winning the lottery at the time. That said, a new home doesn't reduce the hard work of bringing up a family or making ends meet, paying the rent and paying bills. The picture of my three-year-old self that I pass every day as I come into the kitchen of the home in Derry City that I've lived in for many years is a subtle reminder of those early years when we, as children, played happily in the street and were carefree while our parents toiled through long days to make sure we were fed, well-dressed, attending school, doing homework, and all the rest. It was when I became a homemaker and a mother myself that the huge effort needed to fulfill these roles really began to sink in. So true, Anne, and thanks so much for that wonderful story. And what a gorgeous singing voice. And if you think you can follow in Anne's footsteps, maybe not the singing quality, then get in touch through our website at 10by9.com. We are always looking for storytellers. Or contact us through our social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Okay, our next story deals with the powerful themes of suicide and mental health. There's nothing graphic in it, but I just wanted to let you know what to expect. And there's one F word. Here's Mark McGrath with his New Beginnings story. Help me, everybody. Meet Kevin. That's him screaming in the corridor of our secure ward. Kevin was my alarm clock. I didn't know it yet, but there would be a shiny trail of piss from his room to the sodden sheets that he clenched in distress. Kevin was the ghost of childhood grown too old as he screamed for someone to come along with a mop and a fresh nappy. The previous night's drugs were still keeping me drowsy. Kevin may have only been standing there for a few minutes, but I was suicidal. I hadn't been after taking a shower in three months. I couldn't help Kevin anymore to get help me. This morning ritual was the least disturbing feature of my time in Grangewood. Kevin was predictable, a guaranteed grown-up bedwetter 
It came to find a more like Revelia in a shrill, dirty accent than a portent of childlike doom. Wanting to kill yourself is complicated. The mind is razor sharp in the wrong direction. The grim gods of biology barbing your thoughts with perfectly good reasons to self-destruct. But even the grim gods would grow tired and take a few minutes out. Such times made for welcome of somewhat delusional moments of levity in a mirror of men pretending to cope. Lee was one such distraction in our not-so-merry men. He was certain that he didn't want to terminate his existence. Lee had witnessed the devil dancing in his living room. He may have sold his soul during the experience for an infinite supply of red bull because he could crack out a hundred star jumps in a minute. We all watched in awe as we wondered just how much chlorpromazine it would take to put him down. Turns out it would be a lot, the maximum legal dose, in fact. Doctors had told Lee that the world was moving too fast for him and he had to step off the spinning carousel of rapidly cycling thoughts. For some reason, the medical profession had decided that Lee might be a danger to the world if he wasn't sleeping 18 hours a day. I struggled as much with that notion as Lee did. He was a genuine loving kid who just couldn't keep his thoughts from elevating him into manic happiness. Up until the point that the tablets turned him into Sleeping Beauty, Lee had lifted our spirits too. In fact, if it wasn't for the pyjamas, he could easily have been mistaken for a life coach. On a suicide ward? There's irony in there somewhere. If Lee was our unlikely comic relief, it was Cormac who kept me sane. I'd known Cormac for years before our time there, having met him in town on many random encounters. My big friend could walk up to 400 kilometres a week back then, fastidiously noting the number of steps in one of his many journals. It was a chronicle of compulsion that gave his worried family an early indicator of his psychosis. Back in Grangewood, Cormac's droll voice carried the soothing tune of conversation to a broken version of me where he was happy to talk and I was happy to listen. Ah, Mark, I'm sorry to see you in here. That's terrible, my friend. I hope you feel better. Are you feeling okay? Okay is the word that gets us through the quiet conversations that we don't want to have. But it rolled off Cormac's tongue like the lullaby I badly needed back then. I had gone days without sleep, startling awake in bed every night with a horrid reflex reaction. It was a lingering body shock of prolonged antidepressant withdrawal. I needed something unconventional, and here was the maximum dose of friendly medicine labelled Cormac, my burly hypnotic, offering a few soothing seconds of blissful distraction and he wasn't paid to care about me. When you've made active plans to end your life, positive talk seems pointless. I believe that I was too clever to be fooled into wanting to live. Textbook cliches designed to make you think of the other people in your life just pissed me off in their transparency. Yeah, thanks, I'm struggling to care for myself, and you want to give me all the emotional baggage of guilt for my family too? Well, fuck you, buddy. Let the negative thoughts just be there was another floaty box of twaddle that seemed like instructions from a crystal mom's quiz book. Let the thoughts be there, isn't that why I'm on a secure ward? Do you have any advice that doesn't come from a cryptic crossword puzzle? The words that saved my life surprised me. They came on a call to the Samaritans. I'd been threatened with another section if I said I was suicidal again. I remember one psych saying that if she had her way, she would have me on the maximum dose of an antipsychotic. This was before prolonged antidepressant withdrawal was properly known, so it was assumed that my issues were all in my head in an imaginary rather than hydrogenic way. On the call to Samaritans, I wanted to let everything out, but I was stuck, afraid. It's a funny thing when you've been threatened with section, 
it makes you somewhat hesitant to say that you're suicidal. So when it mattered most, I couldn't put across the cathartic punchline. I felt utterly dumb with the truisms, the cookie-cutter words of supposedly caring strangers trying to recite carefully considered lines. And as the call started out, my heart sank because I could see through what they were trying to do. Any family work? Yeah. That's great. Any kids? Yeah. Four. Great. Wow. So here are they. Tell me about them. This was textbook stuff, a mechanism of survival and familial bonds. The guy was doing what no doubt works for a lot of people, just not today and not for me. You still there, Mark? Yeah. You afraid to talk? They said I'd be sectioned if I talk. About what, Mark? I can't. Then he said it, the complete opposite of what I expected. Look, Mark, I'm going to tell you something important. Are you listening? Yeah. Mark, you could have just taken an overdose and there's nothing I can do about it. I don't know who you are or where you are. I won't know those things unless you tell me. You have complete control over this. So I want you to know that you can tell me anything. I only want to help you. The flood gets opened. I felt this tremendous sense of release and I sobbed out my story. What's peculiar is that I still remember being disappointed at the end of the call. When he asked, so do you feel better now? My heart sank again. I felt a little less suicidal, maybe. Better was a risen from the dead kind of stretch, and I hadn't even made it as far as being dead yet. But this stranger had already taught me something important, something that stayed with me to this day. For every shitty thought that grim gods give out, there are these moments of light. They may come as little more than a whisper at the time, but they whisper something that's impossible to shake off. You're wrong, Mark. I realise that doesn't sound like anything new when you've a head full of critical thoughts. Telling myself I was wrong was a well-practiced attack, but it was what I was wrong about here that mattered. It was the substance that softened the tone of those critical words to make them a revelation. A fundamental part of my journey to killing myself was that I was too clever to be convinced otherwise. A random stranger proved me wrong. He gave me back my inner voice that day to self-advocate for my survival. I don't need those words today, but I still feel them. Someone in your life might need to feel them too. Spell them out, hug a friend or a family member, smile at a stranger, anything. You do that, and I guarantee that you will save a life. A few words cost you seconds, but they can transform you into a moment of light. Keep shining out there. Thank you so much, Mark. I really do thank you because although we have to put a little warning on, on the start of stories like that, it's, it's really important, I think, that they're heard. So, Mark, well done. Thank you. Okay. Mark, thank you again for telling that amazing and pain-filled story. It's a great testament to you. Okay, on to our third and final story, and it comes from Josephine Hassan. It was the mid-80s. Himself was working in the big smoke of London, having completed his engineering apprenticeship in Springtown Training Centre. I was about 19 or 20. Come on a wee holiday, says him. You can see the sights and get a taste of big city life. Sure I will, says me. 
and so I sorted the flight out. There being no internet or debit cards back then, honestly can't even remember how that was done, but it probably involved a trip to a travel agent. Now that was exciting. On the first day in London, himself thought I might enjoy the Covent Garden market area. Oh, he was so right. I loved it. All the colours, lots of different people to see, the architecture, the crafts, the aromas of the huge array of foods. It was complete sensory overload. Getting there was the really fun bit. It was the first trip on the tube for me. There were lots of warnings before I got to experience the journey, though. Do not look at people. Definitely do not make eye contact. There are lots of mad people in London. This isn't ungiven, you know. Do not look around you. People will know you're new here, and that will make you a magnet for the mad people. There were other rules, but those were the ones that were the most important. Oh, the sights in the tube station. The diverse range of people scurrying here, there, and everywhere. They were like rabbits running down into different tunnels, rushing past me with their luggage and shopping in tow. There was weird clothing, the like of which I had only ever seen in books, some I'd never encountered at all. There were different hairstyles, city clothing, suits and briefcases, even an odd bowler hat. Peoples of all nationalities, and you have no idea how many foreign languages I heard. I listened to the deep rumble of the trains rushing past way below me, and I felt the blast of their tornado of smelly, dusty air being forced out at the tunnels at the arrival and departure of each train unit. I heard, Get your evening standard here! Thatcher on yielding! Oh my goodness! It was all rich food for my wanderlusting soul, and it did not at all resemble collecting the Derry Journal and Finbar's newsagents. Ever careful to remember the rules, and in an effort to keep on side with himself, I did my utmost not to make eye contact with anyone. Easier said than done. So being crafty, I peeped surreptitiously around me so that I wouldn't be caught. We hopped into a train, into the middle of the very last carriage. The doors whooshed and chugged and clunked, sealing us into the oversized, hot, airless sardine can. We've only three or four stops to go, says him. We'll just stand. And so I leant my back against the glass behind me, and I did my best impression of a seasoned tube traveller. There were four young fellows sitting in the seats that I was facing. I saw them without looking. I was conscious in the distant periphery of my vision that another person was standing at the far end of the carriage, leaning against the glass at that side. The young boys were chatting, laughing, and I felt them watching me. Yeah, I know, paranoid. They kept looking at me, though, ostensibly seeking a reaction. As the journey went on, they laughed louder, becoming more and more overexcited. I silently, discreetly checked. My reflection in the glass opposite showed that I wasn't disheveled. The poodle perm of the day was in keeping with the times. I wore a t-shirt and a skirt. I thought it looked okay, but paranoia kept poking. These boys must know I'm a culture from Dungiven. Let loose in London for the first time. 
Glancing down, I noted that my first ever trip to McDonald's hadn't resulted in mayonnaise exploding from my Mac chicken sandwich, so there was no food stains to be ashamed of. That wee paranoid elf on my shoulder was prodding me even harder now. I didn't wear makeup, so I knew the humid, sticky heat hadn't morphed me into a panda straight out of the zoo. So discreetly, again, I double-checked that my skirt hadn't been caught in my knickers. Now, that would have been embarrassing. Nope, all good there. So it wasn't that particular calamity either. God almighty, the paranoia elf was now on major overdrive. Himself? Well, he was oblivious to it all. He had his back to them. The boys were becoming louder and louder, pointedly staring at me in between convulsive bouts of hilarity. I was silently raging by now. Intentionally and pointedly ignoring them, I gazed out of the train window. Big, solid walls were whizzing past me. Cables thicker than my two arms together ran along the tunnels, black with all the underground dirt built up over hundreds of years. The delinquents laughed even louder now. I continued to ignore them, and I did my best to shut that goddamned elf up too. The train pulled into a station. I prayed that they would get off because I was really exasperated now. The huge, solid doors clunked and whooshed and slid open. Mind the gap. I refused to look at the offensive reprobates. Maintaining a calm, exposed exterior, I watched out onto the platform. In the fringe of my vision, I was conscious that someone had exited at the other end of the carriage. Just one person. Being in the last car, only that one person could walk past my location whilst moving along the platform. Oh, they did. The gentleman sauntered proudly along, shoulders back and head held high, happy and smiling. I have no idea where he stole his travel pass, though, because as he passed by, I realized he wasn't wearing a stitch of clothing. Not even a pair of socks. Nothing. The teenage boys were now on their knees, roaring with laughter. Himself, still oblivious. Clunk, whoosh, mind the gap. At Aldergrove Airport, my daddy collected me. He was very eager to hear of my trip keen to see where I had been. Did you see the Tower of London, says he. Oh, I did, Dolly. I saw the Tower of London in all its glory. I thought you were going to say you saw the crown jewels. Oh, Josephine, thank you so much for that. Hilarious. What a great way to end the podcast. Remember, 10 by 9 is always free and always will be, but you can make a donation via Patreon or PayPal if you like. Or maybe give the podcast a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. We'd be very grateful. You can keep in touch with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Also email, which is story at 10by9.com and be sure to check out the website. We've a few extra events coming up so keep an eye out for those and please, if you can, 
Tell as many people as you can about the podcast. Thanks to the lovely people of the Waterside Theatre, especially Jason and Ian, as well as the Spread the Word Festival. Thanks as well to our gorgeous dairy audience and all our storytellers, but especially Anne Tracy, Mark McGrath and Josephine Hassan. I'm Paul Dorn and I'll be back with another podcast soon. But for now, bye-bye.